Good afternoon. It's Friday the 18th of February 2022, just after one o'clock. Clark, welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, well, we'll get straight on with Canada. And uh, well, this uh, story is a couple of days, or this part of the story is a couple of days old now, but here is uh, Vice uh, with their headline, Hackers Leak Entire Donor History of Every Campaign on this Christian crowdfunding site. Now, this, of course, is uh, the uh, crowdfunding site that uh, the truckers were using uh, after uh, GoFundMe decided to cancel all their previous donations. Give, send, go. Give, send, go, indeed. Um, and uh, uh, over the weekend, that uh, site was down because apparently there had been a hack. Uh, and uh, the details of everybody that had ever, uh, or at least had uh, given to any campaign that was on that uh, site had their, their, their details stolen. Um, then Vice, of course, decided to turn it around a, a day or two later. Uh, and they put this headline out saying, Give, send, go, hacker faces death threats for leaking Freedom Convoy donor info. Now, the hacker's uh, name is uh, Aubrey Cottle. Um, and, uh, well, Vice very keen to sort of push forward with this narrative that, you know, anybody that's involved in anti-lockdown protests, what is a far-right extremist, the swastikas and all that. We'll come on to that a bit, bit more in a second and all that kind of stuff. But, look, I just wanted to give uh, people uh, an idea of what Aubrey Cottle is like. Um, and uh, I do warn you that there is a little bit of uh, uh, bad language in this uh, particular excerpt, but this is uh, him on a live stream uh, on TikTok. Um, and if you're watching, you can see the uh, questions he's answering to that are scrolling up the screen in front of him. Uh, but this should give you an idea of who it was that, that actually carried out this hack. Nothing scares me. Nothing. Yes, I doxed the truckers. I did it. It was me. I hacked Give, Send, Go, baby. And I do it again. I do it a hundred times. I did it. I did it. Come at me. What are you going to do? What are you going to do to me? Hosting! I hacked Parlor! I hacked Gab! I hacked Truth Social! I hacked Go! Give, send, go! I don't care! I'm, you can literally put my name into the news tab on Google and you can find everything I've done! I am literally in every mainstream media publication for the things that I do. I'm not an unknown actor. I'm literally a famous fucking cyber terrorist. And you think that you could scare me? See, they always default to the pedophile accusations. They always default to that because they have nothing else. It's actually some projection. That guy, I want to see his browser history. That guy loves little girls. I have hunted pedophiles. I have outed pedophile rings online. I have gotten pedophiles arrested, buddy. You have no idea who the hell I am.
okay, I, I don't know what to make of that. In the chat box, some people suggesting that they don't believe that this guy actually carried out the hack. That may well be the case. He's certainly the person that, that Vice is uh, claiming has, uh, has carried out the hack. Um, but, you know, what, what do we make of that? Well, Vice usually has a direct line to most unsavory characters, Mike, so uh, there's a high probability that is, in fact, the hacker. Um, firstly, all I'm going to say is um, clearly, clearly he's got psychological issues and uh, spending maybe a little bit too much time in the, uh, his, his command center uh, in the basement, maybe. But, I mean, beyond that, uh, the point is, you know, wh wh why isn't... Why hasn't he been arrested? Isn't that illegal? Well, precisely. <laughs> so, I mean, why aren't they attacking him as being a criminal? It's, that's a criminal hack, basically. But are we living in an atmosphere where uh, the authorities will overlook uh, certain criminal activities if they deem them to be on the right side of a political... Well, it's worse uh, than that. The aisle. mainstream media will promote criminal activities if it's on the right side of the political aisle. If it's the wrong side of the political aisle, even when people are being peaceful, and demonstrating with, with good uh, intentions, uh, they get uh, tarred with the uh, anti-Semitic, the, uh, the um, uh, swastika brush. Yeah, extremist, uh, extremist far so right, so, so, terrorist and so forth. I mean, you can work out this, this, this chap's political leanings. You can more or less work that out by the, his choice of hair dye. Right. But um, I mean, <laughs> besides that, it's kind of like obvious that this is completely politicized now. Sure. So uh, let's move on with this then. And Newsweek saying uh, America's ruling regime doesn't fear disinformation, it fears truth. Well, I thought I'd inject this into the conversation now to uh, show people this, these types of pieces are now popping up on mainstream publications. And you would not have seen this six months ago or 12 months ago. This is a nice piece by Ben Weingarten here. And I want to point out here what he's saying is obviously what we've been saying for the last uh, how many years now? And he's talking about the Department of Homeland Security. They've issued a bulletin. Look at this. The first key driver of the heightened threat environment is the proliferation of false or misleading narratives. Not even information here, Mike. Narratives uh, which sow discord and undermine public trust uh, in U.S. government institutions. This could apply to Canada, could apply to the United Kingdom, uh, could apply to European countries. Look, the governments are doing a, a, a darn good job themselves in undermining confidence in their own institutions right. uh, by their own activities at home and abroad. But uh, here's the interesting part. This is what this author is now saying here. Uh, we know how seriously to take the administration's, he's talking about the Biden administration's views on COVID misinformation and disinformation because by its own standards, the White House and its media mouthpieces have been the most powerful and prolific purveyors of misinformation. I agree with that 100%. And finally, he says, the administration's flip-flopped on virtually every aspect of the coronavirus to positions that its social media adjuncts used to ban people over. Absolutely. Uh, it, will, it, it did so not because the science has changed, but because the politics has changed. So the political science has changed not the actual right. politics. You're seeing more and more of these pieces popping up and sort of mainstream and mid-mainstream type and syndicated columnists and stuff like that. That tells me, Mike, we're seeing a sea change is happening finally. Uh, and even the mainstream can't 
sort of suppress those types of views. Right. So, so that's something I think that is really important to point out uh, because we, we're dealing with a lot of negative, <laughs> negative events and, and news that is happening right now as right. a result of this. So, but, uh, so in, in terms of Canada, this brings us to the Canadian conversation. So uh, it, a lot of people will have seen, to, it, the government has gone completely over the edge, uh, the Trudeau uh, regime. As we'll see in one second, we, yes. We can call it a regime, okay? We'll call it a regime, uh, the Trudeau regime. So uh, the, the truckers' response to this has been basically, most of them are digging their heels in. They're not afraid of the threats. They're not afraid of the special emergency legislation that's been declared by the government. They're saying, no, this is motivating us more to stay longer. I've already lost my job. I've already been depersoned. Right. I'm digging in. So here's a video clip. This, this is two truckers and their response to the issue, uh, the notice issued by the local government to remove their trucks. Uh, I believe this is in Ottawa, but go ahead and look at this. They handed us this letter that says it's a notice from the police to leave. Well, this is what we did with it. Mic drop. So clearly defiant. Uh, they're issuing these notices now. We've, you've probably seen them circulating online. Right. Pretty shocking uh, language in them. I mean, completely fascistic. There's no other way to describe it. And th there's also a lot of uh, truckers from Eastern European countries, uh, many of them who've lived under communism in East Germany or in Poland or in uh, in other countries. Okay, so they're they're very resolute in their sort of position because a lot of them have said on camera, "Hey, look, I left a totalitarian regime." to come to Canada to experience freedom and bring, you know, raise my family here. And so they're absolutely uh, shocked that this is now happening in 2021. Here's one uh, such trucker here who is, is quite emotional and I'll warn people that uh, he does use pro some profanity in this, uh, but we'll, we'll play it for, for a little bit. And uh, but this will give you a taste of, you know, where the, 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 the mindset, the emotional state of some of these protesters, these truckers, but go ahead and listen to this. I think there's nothing that's going to make you leave today. No, sir. I don't care. I have a son. It's my choice, my son, to have a childhood. No government choice. Even it's my brother, choice. Even if you lose your truck. Even if I lose my truck. Why? They take my son's life away. Yeah, brother. You lose your truck. You lose I your lose my truck. I don't. You, they took my fucking who's life away. Who's going to take the truck? Who? No, no, you got, you got a point. Don't worry. They took my life away, sir. I was a hero. I faced the people with the COVID. I was good enough. I was good enough. My son is in the house playing fucking games because he cannot go play outside. Because you guys, you lie. Yeah. You know you lie. Yeah. Because you get paid by that fucker. Because Google, Google are local and Google are liars. Thank you, sir. I'm sorry. I'm very, I'm perfect. I got to the point where we don't have a life. Nobody has a life. And why those cops, they come here and they are not standing to say, I signed it. I stay behind this. Exactly. Why? I, I, Well, Gerald Salente in America has a famous saying: "When people have nothing to lose, they lose. Yes, they lose it." Yes. So you're, you, that's what you're seeing right there. Right. That's what you're seeing right there. So, uh, yeah, and and he's obviously not alone uh, in in his uh, feelings there on that. So, uh, what are they doing on on social media on this? Take a look at this. Uh, Facebook bans, locks out Freedom Convoy admin. 
so this is interesting. Uh, uh, Rochelle Allen Nichols here, a businesswoman uh, from British Columbia, had her personal uh, and her business accounts on Facebook and Instagram suspended. Why? Because she was an admin on one of the accounts for the Freedom Convoy 2022. So just because she was an admin on a Facebook group, they've gone and erased her personal and her business accounts. And this is what she said. I searched for all my contacts and they're all gone too. I'm kind of at a loss for words, says Alan Nichols. So this is the level they're going to. Facebook's deciding. Are they deciding or are they getting information or prompts from people in government uh, or, or names? Uh, you know, are they being contacted directly by law enforcement and are they complying by depersoning and uh, erasing activists? Yes. That's the, that's the question. So I think that's what's happening. So this is a coordinated effort. This is a conspiracy. This is a conspiracy by definition. So this is what's happening. So imagine that, you know, nothing to do with your business, nothing to do with your personal standing. You haven't violated any community standards and you're being targeted politically by Silicon Valley big tech companies mm. based on your political affiliations or that you sympathize with an activist cause. You know, this is a very, very dangerous uh, a space that we're going into here. If there's not outrage against this by the mainstream press, then the Silicon Valley firms, they're, big tech, they're going to keep on doing this. This is what people have to understand. If if the press is not mainstream press isn't shouting about it, they're going to take that as uh, approval. Yes, and yes. they're going to keep they're going to keep doing it, and they're going to do it worse. So where does this bring us? Right here. This is the sort of stuff. <laughs> that now the government's having to contend with. They're ordering tow truck companies to go and take the trucks away. But guess what? Canadian towing companies are ignoring the order. At least two firms that this uh, news outlet, Newsweek, spoke to have rejected these requests by the government to help tow these trucks away. They're basically saying, no, I won't do it. And they're issuing them all sorts of threats now. So imagine that. The government's compelling businesses to, to carry out uh, whatever orders on behalf of the government. And so the CEO of this tow truck company, Mike, said, why don't you get the police and the army to do it? I'm not going to do it. Right. So for me, it's a lose-lose uh, situation. So I'm not going to do it. And then on the banking side, so they've announced, and we'll, we'll get into it, but uh, how they're going to shut down accounts, freeze accounts, freeze assets, cryptocurrencies, and so forth. So uh, this week, it was pointed out, uh, this is Kyle Becker's blog here on Substack, uh, that uh, is there a run on the banks in Canada? Four major banks' uh, websites were all offline at the same time, uh, and people weren't able to do any transactions and so forth. So what's going on there? And so let's take a look at that. Uh, this was also tweeted out um, in in relation to this account as well. This is Scotia Bank, same day. This is uh, BMO, I believe that's Montreal, uh, and this is Canadian Trust. Canada Trust outages and the Royal Bank of Canada outages as well, all coinciding at the same time. What's just just a coincidence? What's going on there? Is yeah. this so? Could this be uh, some sort of cyber event? Uh, could it be the banks coordinating some sort of action to slow down uh, customers? What taking money out? Mm -hmm. Maybe trying to keep people from emptying their accounts uh, because they're afraid of getting their assets seized. Could that be what's happening here? It, it very well could. And of course, uh, you know, in, in the 2007-2008 financial crash, we saw this type of thing happening. We've seen it happening periodically with with British banks where, where go to, people go to pay with their 
their debit cards and, and they're not working anymore. Uh, and of course, it's blamed on, on IT issues. But for four banks, to do, for this to be happening at the same time with four banks, uh, it's, it's very unlikely unless it's a coordinated effort. And, and probably coordinated with government. Yes. So this is banks not protecting their customers? No, working with government and right. being accomplices to what is clearly an unlawful and illegal action by government. I mean, they're saying it's under emergency powers, but that is uh, uh, tenuous, uh, as we'll show you in a second. So yes, look at this. Yes, that's true. Uh, this was a couple of days ago. There was a threat. Banks are moving to freeze assets and accounts using powers granted under the Emergencies Act. Federal government has directed banks and other financial institutions to stop doing business with people associated with the anti-vaccine mandate convoy, so associated with. How do you define who's associated with? To what degree do they need to be associated with? Do they need to be one of the organizers or do they need to be somebody who happens to, to like a tweet uh, that, that's supportive of the, of the convoy? Or donate money to give, send, go? For example. I mean, what? so that, that, that makes me question that hack as well. Yes. Possibly. Was, was there more going on there than we saw? So, and the government is also ordering, get this, insurance companies to suspend policies on vehicles that are part of an unlawful, quote, public assembly. I and mean, this is another level here, leaning on insurance companies to basically cancel the policies. So the insurance company cancels the policy. The next thing you know, you're stopped by the police and you're caught driving without insurance. And before you know it, your, your, uh, your vehicle is seized. And your, what, license is suspended. Right. Really, so this is a really, I mean, this is seriously underhanded tactics here, but what is this but basically jackboot thuggery by the Canadian government, by the woke uh, Justin Trudeau regime. And so, yes, lo and behold, indeed, this is the uh, finance minister here, Christina Freeland, and the banks have started to freeze accounts linked to the protests, linked to the protests. Is that, were they doxing people on social media, pulling photos off Instagram, IDing people? I mean, what's going through YouTube videos? What are they doing? She's an interesting character, Mike, uh, Miss Freeland. Okay, she, uh, she's the heir apparent to Justin Trudeau. Okay. So if he gets booted out, she's most likely it's someone like this that's going to fill his shoes. Okay, so she has an interesting story. She has an interesting, interesting pedigree. She's like, Tru like Trudeau, she's affiliated with the World Economic Forum in Davos. And not only that, she's not just affiliated with the WEF. Let's take a look here. There she is, Christia Freeland, member board of trustees for the WEF. So she's a heavyweight. So basically, uh, yeah, she works for Lord Omicron, okay? She works for Lord Omicron. So her current position is deputy uh, Prime Minister of the Minister of Finance, Office of Deputy Prime Minister of Canada. So yeah, so there she is, de Deputy PM. She will, if, if Trudeau gets the boot or he becomes a liability, then you have a worse globalist here. And she is absolutely ruthless, this one. Okay, but I thought we'd also point out who she hangs out with, Mike, uh, where she spends her social time. Well, look at this. We found this interesting tweet here. This is Miss uh, Freeland with the white helmets. And she's uh, carrying the white helmet there. Uh, she calls them courageous volunteers who risk their life every day to help their fellow uh, Syrians targeted by violence. I mean, the guys she's getting photographed with 
I doubt they've risked their life anytime recently, but they're just doing tours, getting selfies with all of our politicians to guarantee that our politicians don't say anything bad about the fact that the white helmets are basically sharing the same encampments with Al-Qaeda. So uh, obviously we're redefining terms. We redefined the term vaccine, for example. We're clearly redefining the term courageous volunteer. It used to be known as terrorist. Right. So back to that tweet. Let's just take a look at that. We just thought we'd point out here what we're talking about here. That's right. Little greetings from Idlib card there. Takbir, that's uh, one of the uh, HTS, Hayrit uh, al-Sham, uh, if I pronounced that correctly. But anyway, she was honored to meet the White Helmets, who basically are a mop-up outfit for these guys here, nice guys with the black flags. So I just thought we'd point out who uh, Christia Freeland hangs out with, spends her time with, and takes selfies with, Al-Qaeda, basically. So, but to, to get an idea that the scale of the WEF network, this is an article published recently by F. William Angdahl, uh, Davos and the Purloined Letter Conspiracy. Well, if you remember these, the old Edgar Allan Poe yes. short story, The Purloined Letter, hiding in plain sight, as it were. And so he's basically showing a list of all these graduates of the WEF from when the Young Leaders Program began in 1993. It's like a who's who, basically, of top government leaders, officials, heads of Silicon Valley. Bill Gates himself was among the first alumni from the Young Leaders Program alongside of uh, a Angela Merkel. Uh, but this is just a right-wing conspiracy, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd like to say it would be, Mike, but yeah. unfortunately it's not. Check this article out by uh, William Engdahl. It also includes, funny enough, the CEO of Moderna, uh -huh. Stefan Bansell. He was also one of their graduates. I mean, everybody has been through that program. Not everybody has stayed on board with the program, but you can you can see by looking at the list who's yes. who's stayed on board yes. with with, uh, with Lord Omicron uh, and his agenda there. Uh, Herr Schwab, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. But so that brings us to this thing. So that's just the situation in Canada. We'll come back to Canada in a second, but where are we with Europe? Well, where some countries have you know, pretty much abandoned COVID restrictions so far. At least they've announced they're going to drop it all. Denmark, uh, Lithuania, Czech, Sweden. Sweden, Czech Republic. Uh, there's a couple of other uh, countries in there. But, but the big ones haven't. Okay, the ones that matter are France, Germany, the Netherlands, and Italy. Mm. So we, ha we haven't had any movement there. So that, that's a big question. Where is Europe headed? Where is the UK on this? Well, the UK seems to be shifting out of the, uh, the the COVID regime at the moment. At the moment. At the moment, yeah. yes. We'll come up back to that in a little bit. But look, uh, coming back to uh, to Canada then, um, the situation within the Canadian Parliament isn't so good. And Trudeau making all kinds of uh, accusations against his uh, uh, opposition Conservative Party. Uh, and so let's just have a look at this little video, the little bit of video. Uh, this is uh, Melissa Lanceman, who's Conservative uh, MP in Canada. Uh, and uh, well, she asked Trudeau a question and got what was not necessarily what she thought uh, was going to be the response. But let's have a look at this. 
optimistic, hopeful vision for public life isn't a naive dream. It could be a powerful force for change. If Canadians are to trust their government, their government needs to trust Canadians. Those are the words of the Prime Minister in 2015. These people, very often misogynistic, racist, women haters, science deniers, the fringe. Same Prime Minister six years later as he fans the flames of an unjustified national emergency. So, Mr. Speaker, when did the Prime Minister lose his way? When did it happen? Right, Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, Conservative Party members can stand with people who wave swastikas. They can stand with people who wave uh, the Confederate flag. We will choose to stand with Canadians who deserve to be able to get to their jobs, who be able to get their lives back. These illegal protests need to stop, and they will, Mr. Speaker. So that, as you could hear, caused quite a furore on the Conservative Party benches. Uh, and then Dan Lloyd, MP, also Conservative MP, uh, stood up. Uh, let's have a listen to what happened at that point. Member for Sturgeon River Parkland. Mr. Speaker, I've never seen such shameful and dishonourable remarks coming from this Prime Minister. My great-grandfather flew over 30 missions over Nazi Germany. My great-great-uncle's body lies at the bottom of the English Channel. There are members of this Conservative caucus who are the descendants of victims of the Holocaust. For the Prime Minister to accuse any colleague in this House of standing with the swastika is shameful. I'm giving the Prime Minister an opportunity. I'm calling on him to unreservedly apologize for this shameful remark. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, Canadians deserve their freedoms back. Mr. Speaker, these illegal blockades that have continued to interfere with people's livelihoods, to interfere with people's, uh, people's daily lives, uh, have... I have to interrupt the Honourable Prime Minister, so ask everyone to calm down so we can hear the answer. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker. The measures put forward in this uh, Emergencies Act are proportional, are responsible and, quite frankly, uh, are completely folded within the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The steps that we are taking are important and measured to restore order and freedoms to Canadians in this country. That is exactly what we are doing. Well, member for Sturgeon River, Parkland. Mr. Speaker, the lack of an apology from that Prime Minister speaks volumes. I have given this Prime Minister an opportunity to retract a shameful remark where he would accuse any honourable member of this House to stand with a swastika. As I said before, we have colleagues who are the descendants of victims of the Holocaust. I'm giving the Prime Minister one more chance. Will he apologize to all members of this House? Exactly. Right, honourable Prime Minister. the members of the Conservative Party are calling to, uh, to us to take more action over the past two weeks on this. Uh, they continued to stand with and encourage these illegal blockades. Mr. Speaker, uh, Canadians uh, are watching carefully and see exactly where the Conservative politicians who've stood with uh, those blockades uh, are standing. We will stand on the side of Canadians who deserve their lives back, who deserve their livelihoods back. 
I think that's absolutely right. Canadians are watching very closely what's going on. And uh, Trudeau there at the end, certainly it came across like he felt like he was on pretty shaky ground there. He was uh, quite nervous in how he was just, uh, explaining himself, but he refused to apologize for the statement. Yeah, and, and the thing that the Orwellian statement that he made, you have to make note of, he said that Canadians deserve their freedoms back. I mean, talk about Orwellian spin on that. He's basically saying, no, we need these mandates. We need to shut these protests down so everybody can get vaccinated and we can get our freedoms back. And he does this by taking away all of the rights and freedoms. Right. I mean, unbelievable. This guy is so detached from reality. And mind you, he's talking uh, morally and uh, he, he, you know, this is a guy that uh, likes wearing blackface on the weekends. You know, he, a total hypocrite. So, I mean. uh, absolutely. So, uh, look, uh, what a one, one thing I want to mention, of course, is you were talking about in your segment there about uh, the uh, bank accounts being frozen. Now, uh, we don't know whose bank accounts are being frozen at this point. Uh, is it the people that were on the, the list of hacked uh, details from uh, the, uh, the, the crowdfunder site? Uh, or is it only people that are perceived to be the organizers of the event? Or lists given by the police to the banks or the law enforcement, whatever. Right. But if, if, that's, if that's already happening, how much easier is it going to be once we head towards uh, central bank digital currencies, which Britain is very much uh, in the lead with uh, amongst other countries? But the House of Lords a, few, a couple of weeks ago uh, highlighted this or they issued this report. Uh, they've headlined it central bank... Central Bank Digital Currencies, A Solution in Search of a Problem. Uh, and I just wanted to highlight a couple of the points that they make on this. First of all, uh, there are two main security risks, they say, posed by a central bank digital currency. First, individuals' accounts could be compromised through weaknesses in cybersecurity. Second, the centralized CDB CBDC ledger, uh, the uh, centralized ledger could be a critical piece of national infrastructure, could be target for attack from a hostile and non-hostile state actors. I wonder, or sorry, a hostile state and non-state actors, I wonder who they mean. Could That could be from your own intelligence agencies. Indeed. Or your allies. Uh, while no design can guarantee absolute security, any CBDC system will need to be adaptable to emerging security threats and technological change, including fast developing quantum computing. So although they're, they're sort of saying in this report, they don't really see a reason for Britain to be moving ahead so fast with certainly retail uh, CBDCs, they're basically saying, well, only if there's, you know, unless you can guarantee uh, absolute or close to absolute security and so on. Uh, they go on to say uh, there may be some benefits uh, from the introduction of a wholesale CBDC. So we remember with uh, central bank digital currencies, there are two types. There's a wholesale type, which is the central banks uh, uh, processing payments between the banks themselves and a retail version, which is for the, the likes of you and I. Uh, so, uh, from the introduction of a wholesale CBDC for use between financial institutions, while the wholesale operations of the uh, monetary system are already efficient, the CBDC may help further enhance efficiency in securities trading and settlement. Uh, but in other words, it'll allow the big institutions to get their money out faster. Uh, but further exploration and experimentation are necessary. The committee recommends the Joint Task Force uh, consults on the use case for a wholesale CBDC alongside its 2022 retail uh, CBDC consultation. And then finally, their fin f final recommendation is, uh, they say a case for a digital pound may change in the future and therefore the government and Bank of England could derive most benefit now by taking action to shape global standards 
which suit the UK's values and interests, for example, with regard to privacy, security and operational standards. Well, so uh, while it seemed uh, on the, the, based on the headline that they were a bit sort of negative about it, in fact, what they're really aiming for is that the British government takes the lead in, in making sure the designs are right. Um, and uh, of course, once you've got a right, a correct design and you start rolling out retail CBDCs, how much easier is it to, to, to seize people's bank accounts or remove access? And we've highlighted on previous programs that this has been discussed, that perhaps if your behavior isn't quite right, uh, that maybe uh, your uh, access to your retail uh, central bank digital currency would be uh, curtailed in some way. Extremely dangerous. We've seen it effectively being implemented uh, in Canada now with bank accounts being seized. Uh, this is another step along that road if it's allowed to get to that point. So you're saying with, with really what you're saying here, what you're describing here is with the, if you go completely digital or as a, as a programmable currency, for instance, where they can actually even program what it can be spent or can't be spent on. Not only what it can be spent on, but where it can be spent. And when. And when and yes. when it can be spent that that effectively right there is the, that is the absolute end of modern democracy or anything resembling it, you, it the two cannot coexist you cannot have uh, a state uh, with complete control over everything your, your whole life including every penny that you might be able to have access to right. to feed yourself to put a roof over your head to feed your family okay so it's over at that point so, you know, in Canada, they're saying if you don't tow a certain political line, if you disagree with draconian policies, forced vaccinations, mandates, you can call them mandates, but it's coercion. Right. It's effectively forcing people to get vaccinated by threatening, uh, with, threatening them with unemployment and bankruptcy. Okay. So it's forced pharmaceutical medical interventions. And if you don't tow the line on that, then what? We shut you off. We'll shut off your bank account. We'll shut off your means of making a living. Uh, we'll literally, we'll shut off your ability to even get, you know, 10, 10 bucks right. out, out of the bank. So, I mean, that, that's the end. It's over at that point. You, you can't come back. So, I mean, I don't know how much more people need to know. We're seeing it play out in real time in Canada right now. That's what will happen. It'll happen in every single government that's even shown the, the, the minimum of uh, totalitarian proclivities, okay, and I believe all of our Western governments have. Have, yes, yes. yes. So. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org slash community and uh, there are options for you to help us out there and uh, also do share our material on the various platforms. Uh, and I just want to say that uh, tonight at 6 p.m. Uh, there's uh, the next uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics uh, Symposium. Uh, the interdisciplinary symposium number three, the truth so that you set you free is how it's being uh, billed. Uh, and uh, well, you can uh, join us at 6 p.m. It'll be live streamed on the UK Column uh, website, of course, and also uh, on uh, a number of other websites around the internet, but obviously we would prefer you watch it with us. Um, now, uh, the uh, mainstream headlines this morning and for the last couple of days have been focused on the weather, of course, and uh, well, Strong winds today, Patrick, for sure. Uh, but UK weather warnings, this is the Met Office, and uh, red warnings for, uh, for Devon and Cornwall, and, and red warnings for the London and Southeast area with extremely high winds. Uh, and we had, uh, you know, this type of uh, 
Uh, headline um, <clears throat> from the Daily Mail this morning, Britain faces the full force of Storm Eunice. Wind speeds reach ferocious 122 miles per hour, making it stronger than the Great Storm of 1987. As lorries blow over on motorways, huge trees are felled and roofs fly off buildings. Uh, the wrath of Eunice. It's more fair porn, really, isn't it? Because this, this, the headlines have been running through over the last number of days. Um, and uh, so we have this in Plymouth as well. Here's Plymouth Live. They've got a live updates, traffic and damage uh, page. Uh, and of course, Patrick, as we know, the restaurants and uh, and bars on the on the Plymouth Hill right down at the, the uh, they're being uh, hit by some waves. We'll come on to this in a bit more in a second. The notorious wet walk. That's yes. A Chinese, restaurant Chinese restaurant down there. And it's not called the wet walk for, for nothing. nothing. Indeed. <laughs> um, but look, here's the thing. Um, what we're seeing with these headlines, which we've seen in other uh, areas as well. Uh, so the question is, is this weather that we're seeing at the moment unusual in any way? Uh, is it something to be fearful of? Um, well, of course, the first thing you do if you want to make somebody fearful of something is you give it a name. So here's uh, the BBC explaining why do storms have names? They're explaining this to children, of course. Um, but this type of thing happens every year to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, we all did geography at school, I'm sure, and we were all taught about Atlantic depressions and the British Isles. This is normal. And if we look at uh, the example that Internet Geography is giving here, they've got a Met Office uh, weather map from 2014. Uh, and in fact, the low pressure there is uh, 942 millibars, which is about 30 millibars lower than the low pressure that we're experiencing at the moment. So this is nothing unusual. Uh, we have various weather fronts associated with this. It happens all the time. In fact, depressions typically move over the UK from west to east. According to Internet Geography, the UK is affected by around 100 depressions every year. This is normal weather, but we're being told there's something abnormal about it. Why are we being told that? Well, of course, because there's a a climate change narrative mm. being built here, right? But we've seen this type of uh, experience from the mainstream press in other areas. Let's go back to 2020, April 2020. Coronavirus may have infected half of the UK population, Oxford study. This was right at the beginning in April 2020. But uh, it didn't end there because, first of all, we, we took a, a winter virus, uh, which, um, okay, it's caused some people some problems, but the first thing we did was we gave it a name, just like the storms, we called it coronavirus. Novel, the novel, novel coronavirus. Novel, so and then we give the actual illness a name, uh, COVID-19. So naming something is very key. But then what's the next thing you do? You create new names, uh, as we said, but also another name variant, for example. But then you, uh, of course- That's a whole new class there, a variant. Yes. They invented a whole class. Uh, but uh, then, of course, uh, what do you do? You start adjusting the statistics as you see fit. So here again, from April 2020, the Office for National Statistics making the point that a death uh, can be registered with both COVID-19 and influenza or pneumonia mentioned on the death certificate. Therefore, a death may be counted in both categories. So it didn't really matter what you actually died of if, if it happened to be uh, that uh, COVID-19 was mentioned, it was counted. Uh, the Office for National Statistics at the time, if you remember, said this. This isn't something that would have always been the case. It's just for the COVID-19 reporting. Special rules. Special rules. So because you're building a narrative here. If we go to the United States, it was the same deal. CDC tells hospitals to list COVID as cause of death, even if you're just assuming or it only contributed. 
That's right. So if you make an assumption that it was COVID, you put it on the death certificate, whether you've got any evidence or not. We saw this same type of uh, psychological operation, I'm going to call it that, in April 2020. We've seen it all the way through the last two years, not just with COVID. Let's look at this. Uh, Oxford, a few weeks ago, pushed this out. Highly new, new, highly virulent and damaging HIV variant discovered in the Netherlands. We mentioned it on this program a, a number of times in the last week or so. And of oh, course- by, by the way, it's, uh, did you mention the fact that it's not new? That's what I'm just gonna say. Yeah. So the, the point here is it produced the headlines. Here's France 24, new highly virulent uh, HIV strain discovered in the Netherlands. No, it's not discovered in the Netherlands. It's been circulating since the 80s or the 90s. I say since early 1993 or 91. Right. Yeah. And and so so a strain, it's, not a variant. They used they used variant in the last headline. Right. Because that's been launched with COVID. The term variant. Sure. But, but the old term is what strain, right? Strain, indeed. Yeah. But uh, it doesn't. It's not just there. Uh, what about with respect to Russia? RAF fighter jets scrambled to intercept Russian planes near. Uh, UK 136 times in 17 years, says the Independent. But as Brian has said many times on this program, this type of activity is normal. It's been going on uh, since the beginning of the Cold War. There's nothing unusual about this, but the way that it's take, grabbed by the mainstream press and turned into headlines makes it appear to be something That's different. Right. Oh, and they're doing that with Ukraine, which we'll talk about in we a few will, minutes. We will indeed. So uh, six Russian war landing ships sailed past, we reported this at the time, sailed past the UK on the way to Ukraine as tension mounts. Again, a headline, uh, they were on their way to an exercise, right? But, but the headline spins it in, in a particular way. So let's come back to uh, uh, stunning footage. Uh, shows huge waves battering Plymouth Hoe, except that this was from 2019. And in fact, Patrick, if you remember in 2014, we had this giant white wave hippo Eats house on Plymouth Hoe, says the tweet. Well, Patrick, as you remember, I was living in that building at the time. And in yeah. fact, I was standing in the garden when that particular wave hit and I got extremely wet. You were Jonah. I was indeed. I was happy to be speaking to my neighbor and uh, well, she ran away and managed to get into the house. I didn't. But anyway, the point is, the point I'm trying to make here is this is normal. It happens all the time. Uh, it's being presented as something abnormal. We're being taken into uh, particular narratives, whether it be uh, the climate change, whether it be COVID, whether it be Russia, whether it be HIV, it doesn't matter. It's it's the same. Uh, uh, it's the same. Uh, what's the word? The same process that is being done on people each time. So let's just come back to this news round uh, article again. Why do storms have names? Uh, and this is what it said. The Met Office decided to start giving storms names back in 2014 in the same way they do in America. Uh, and then at the end here, uh, Derek Ryle from the Met Office said, uh, we've seen how naming storms elsewhere in the world raises awareness of severe weather before it strikes. Mm -hmm. That's what it's all about. It's about making sure that people, it's fear, it's driving fear, it's driving behavioral change through fear, and it's driving the ability for them to justify uh, I'm talking about the government and, and the, the media and so forth, to, so, so on to, to justify policy directions that people wouldn't otherwise accept. Because when people are fearful, they can't think, ration, think rationally about these things. Yeah, when you name a storm or you name a new variant, which they've done many times, the press can rally around that new name. You can sculpt headlines around it. You can make whole endless news pieces and packages around marketing around these new names. But for the weather, Mike, you really, uh, you really can see this extreme weather narrative 
So if it's 122 mile an hour winds, as opposed to 120 a few years ago, if it's a, then it's a record breaking wind in that part of, uh, of the UK, even though there's other stronger winds nearby, it doesn't matter. Record breaking, extreme weather. We must do all we can to get the climate under control. So, and, and that brings us into the whole climate change program. So let's have a look at this then. This is the uh, National Ocean Service in the United States, 2022 sea level rise technical report. And uh, well, what are they saying? Uh, first of all here, sea level along the US coastline is projected to rise on average 10 to 12 inches in the next 30 years, which will be as much as the rise measured over the last 100 years. So in the next 30 years, it's gonna rise as much as in the last 100 years, if you believe that. Uh, sea level rise will vary regionally al along the U.S. coast because of changes in both land and ocean height. Okay, you can take that uh, as, as you like. It goes on to say the report provides greater confidence in estimates of sea level rise uh, out to 2050 than the previous 2017 report because of advances in sea level science as captured in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report and the use of multiple uh, lines of evidence. Both the trends in the amount of relative sea level rise already observed and the models of future sea level rise closely match one another in the next 30 years. How do they know that? My point here is, we, again, as with COVID, everything climate change is based on the models. Now, there's claiming that, uh, that the, the new models that they've just released in the 2022 sea level rise technical report are better than the 2017 ones because the science has moved on mm -hmm. and the models has moved on. What do they mean by better? Do they mean that it's more accurate or do they mean that it better suits a narrative, that a pre-prepared narrative? I'm not clear about that. But the point is, it's the same MO as we're seeing with coronavirus and many other uh, policy objectives. Well, the models drive policy. Models drive policy. COVID models, epidemiological models, sea level models, climate models, temperature models, they drive policy. Not, not actual temperature, not actual sea levels, not actual pandemics, no. The computer modeling drives policy. That's the lesson of the day. Uh, and, uh, uh, and not just invasions, by the way, because the, uh, the UK intelligence services have issued uh, a new model for the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and, and <laughs> or are they doing that as well? They're doing that as well. <laughs> it's like SimCity or what's the, it what, absolutely is. what are those computer games? Yes. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, probably more like. Indeed. Uh, so let's move on to Ukraine and Russia. Well, yeah, speaking of uh, fantasy plots and fictional war scenarios, look at this. This is... None other than the uh, party leader here from the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky. This is the head of his parliamentary uh, faction here, servant of the people is the name of the party. What's he saying this week? Well, this is what he's saying. Ukraine's leading party chief blames foreign media for spreading fake news about a Russian invasion. So basically he's saying, look at this. Yeah, U.S. media outlets have been spreading blatant fake news about the threat of further Russian invasion to the Ukraine, that's uh, David Arachimia, uh, chairman of the Ukraine Servant of the People Parliamentary Faction. That's the party of the president, the current president. So basically he's saying it's fake news. So it, it, you know, what, what they've done here is incredible. Uh, what the U.S. has done, well, we'll explain what they've done in a minute, Mike. I'll show you um, in, in, a, in a future slide. But um, there, there was no Russian invasion. There was no Russian invasion. Indeed. What, wasn't going to happen. 
but uh, we'll show you how in a minute. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, of course, we've got this narrative. So we've got the Ukraine and Russia uh, trading accusations of shelling. Well, it's not Ukraine and Russia, of course. That's how it's being described in the mainstream press. It's Ukraine and the so-called Russian separatists that are trading accusations. And it began with this a couple of days ago. Shelling strikes two schools in eastern Ukraine, including kindergarten. Uh, and, uh, well, uh, of course, who's being blamed for this? Well, it's the so-called Russian separatists. And this is Radio Free uh, Europe, by the way. So, and Liberty Europe, that's a, a front for the U.S. State Department, just so everybody knows. Yes. That's a state, literally a state-run media outlet. So what they're saying is the party line of Washington. So this is the party line. And the first paragraph says, a school was damaged by shelling on the morning of February 17 uh, in uh, eastern Ukraine's Luhansk region. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Patrick, but uh, the so-called Russian separatists occupy that space That's in right. Luhansk. So is it likely that they would be shelling their own schools? Very unlikely. In fact, probably close to impossible. Um, so the question is, who was shelling whom? Well, the uh, Ukrainian military has pushed out this. Uh, let's just do a quick translation of it. Official statement of the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, uh, Lieutenant General uh, Valery uh, Salushi, I can't pronounce it, Salunsky. Uh, but uh, what's he saying? Well, basically, uh, we didn't do it, Gov. And anything that we did do was merely defensive. Uh, so it wasn't us. Mm. Uh, so the question is, who do you believe? Um, and uh, well, in the meantime, as we've reported, mainstream press full of this, Russia begins false flag attacks against Ukraine. So the, the, the implication is, that the uh, Russian separatists bombed their own schools in order to uh, Blame, it, it, yeah. su suggest this a false flag. Right, yeah, to draw the Russians to draw, in. Yes. I mean, so we heard all these reports about a false flag weeks ago. Uh, the, the U.S. said they had intelligence. We have intelligence. <laughs> the Russians are going to shoot a, a false flag video with crisis actors uh, in order to justify invading uh, the Donbass, okay? The, they telegraphed that already, Western intelligence. So it's like a double reverse PSYOP, okay? So, they, why, so why would the Russian separatists go ahead and fulfill the, uh, the, 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 the PSYOP plot that was announced two weeks ago right. by the U.S. government? I mean, you've got to be kidding me. What I think this looks more like, Mike, is that they, they're actually they're going through the motions. This was, I believe, this or this type of event was the false flag. The West is accusing Russia of doing the very thing that the United States and Britain and and everyone else have been doing constantly to get themselves into every single war right since who knows when, okay? And now they're 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 projecting this onto the Russians saying that now they're the masters of the false flag. There is no evidence that Russia's carried out any false flag attacks to my knowledge, but for the United States and NATO for instance, I got a pretty long list actually. So, I mean, uh, who's got credibility in that department? They're really gaslighting people right now on this. So I think this school shelling in, in Lugansk, I think they're, 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 they set in motion one of these plots just maybe to see how it goes Yes, and then see how it plays out in the media. But I, I totally think this is what this is. Right. But in the meantime, here's Sky News this morning, Ukraine latest updates, Putin to hold nuclear military drills as the United States says, no evidence of Russian troops leaving. Now, uh, Putin is apparently going to be personally uh, looking after their, uh, watching these military drills as they take place uh, with involving, uh, obviously not nuclear armed, but certainly the missiles that, that would fire nuclear weapons and so on. 
But, uh, you know, this narrative continues. Uh, 3 a.m. on Wednesday was supposed to be the start of the war. That clearly didn't happen, Patrick. Uh, but now, um, today, it's in the next few days. And so they're back onto the in the next few days narrative. When you said Putin's going to personally be conducting the drills, you were joking, weren't you? No, well, he's going to be he's going to be, well, he's uh, going to be watching there. and he's going to be there and he's, you know, so and he's not obviously, observer, it's being presented in the mainstream press as he yeah. is going to be personally conducting the drills, which is completely yeah. nonsense. And, and he has to, per he personally, uh, he personally gives the order for every single bullet that's fired. Or, of course he does. Or bomb that's dropped or troop that's deployed, of course, of course. So back to the invasion. Let's take a look at that invasion. So this is what you would have seen if you watched mainstream media here. This is this is NATO propaganda. So look at what they've done. It's very clever. So if you think about what NATO and the US know, they've got satellites parked over here and everywhere else in the world. In fact, there's private companies that got satellites parked here. They know when all the Russian military drills are in Belarus, in the northern part of the Ukraine border, along the Donbass border, and of course you have Crimea, that's the peninsula at the bottom. So the Western intelligence agencies know full well where and when everything is being shifted and moving around. All they did was basically wait till this part of the year, then they added them all up to get a big number, 100,000 troops, 120,000 troops, 150 this week. By next week, it'll be 170, maybe 200,000. It keeps rising, like how many people Bashar al-Assad supposedly butchered in Syria. It rises by the week. But anyway, it's very clever what they've done. And they've added it up to a big, impressive number. They've even included the permanent troops in, in Sevastopol, yeah. At the, yeah. which is like 35,000 uh, troops and personnel in, in Crimea that are always stationed there, okay? They've added that into this super total of the Russians are planning an invasion. And then they come up with this big number. And then they know, they said, it's going to happen on Wednesday of this, this past week, just two days ago. Yeah. And why did they pick Wednesday when they were so sure it was going to be Wednesday? You remember that on yes. Monday? The reason they picked it, because they knew that Russia was going to rotate out. Okay, here's another one. This is CNN. They knew Russia was going to rotate those drills and finish those exercises. And then they could declare victory. And this is what Biden did. He went in front of the United States uh, electorate and he said, we, we, are, we stand firm and resolute together against Russian aggression and this Putin's aggression, and we're going to keep protect our allies, the Ukraine, and they won't invade. So they sort of half tried to declare victory by the fact that Russia moved some troops out. And they knew they were going to move them out. Of course they did. So what you're looking at here is a virtual tabletop exercise running mostly in the media, okay? And it's also a virtual victory that's declared. And then they're threatening sanctions as well. They're saying, well, don't make us put sanctions on, on you and we're going to shut the Nord Stream 2 pipeline down yeah. if you dare to invade Ukraine. And Russia plans to invade and they're going to do a false flag attack. I mean, they threw everything in the kitchen sink at this to get you at home to believe that the Russians were actually going to invade. I mean, there should be no credibility whatsoever left with the Western intelligence agencies. I'm sorry to say, guys, but it's really a joke now, by now, and also our governments. I mean, what they're doing here is is pretty much beyond the pale. I've never seen anything like this mm. uh, in all the years that we've been uh, studying, watching, and reporting mm. on, on geopolitics. So the other thing they said is, well, 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 uh, Putin was uh, angry that we stood and we defeated him and we stood up to his, his aggression. This is what happened. Ukraine accuses Russia of cyber attack on two banks and its defense ministry. So this was just on Wednesday uh, and Thursday here. And this is the head of the uh, SBU cyber division says it's, it's too early to definitively <laughs> identify specific perpetrators. So the headline is, and everyone around the world saying, 
and everyone on Fox News is saying, Russia just launched a cyber attack against Ukraine. And then the actual SBU chief here, uh, Ilya Vityuk, uh, cybersecurity chief, he's saying, no, it's too early to tell the perpetrators. All you have to do is read down three paragraphs into the, uh, the article. But the mainstream press don't. They just kind of go with this. They run these headlines. The general public thinks that uh, Putin, out of uh, maliciousness, uh, launched a cyber attack. What was it? A DDoS attack, a denial of service attack. Some customers reported that they could not uh, uh, make transactions on the website. Yeah. I mean, so is that a Russian cyber hit? A couple of DDoS attacks? Anybody can do a DDoS attack pretty much, okay? Any third-party actor. And also, well, uh, all I have to say is, well, look at this. Uh, and he says, well, of course, he's apportioning blame after that. The only country that's interested in such attacks uh, is the Russian Federation. Okay, so I have two words for everybody, okay? You don't think that the United States or another NATO member could not launch a one of these types of half-hearted cyber attacks, okay? And then blame it on the Russians. I have two words for you right here. Vault 7. Yes. This is what came out in WikiLeaks Vault 7. The CIA has hacking tools that allows them to put digital fingerprints on the hack to insert Cyrillic characters or any other characters they want to make it look like a foreign actor did something when in fact they didn't, when in fact it was done by the CIA itself or one of its myriad of contractors, okay? That's a fact. Those are the tools the West has. This is the tools they've used. And this is more likely how the DNC hack was done as well and then blamed on Russia. Yes, and indeed we shouldn't forget as well, of course, the, the new policy in the UK, which is the, uh, 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 interoperability and, and that kind of thing is, is absolutely talking about Britain moving from a defensive posture with respect to cyber and other things to an offensive posture. How much, uh, how much is, is Britain and involved in offensive cyber attacks in, in foreign countries? Uh, right front and center, I think. Yeah, it's, it's totally opaque as well. You can attack your allies in order to push them closer to you, sure. uh, into your camp. And certainly that's what's happening with Ukraine. And here we go. And of course, this is the result. Uh, this was from April 2021, but they're talking about this now. They've already slapped sanctions on Russia over an alleged cyber attack and alleged election meddling, which we found out uh, this last week. And we haven't uh, done much analysis on this. I don't know if you have uh, already, but uh, Hillary Clinton is, uh, has been caught and her campaign aides caught fabricating evidence of uh, uh, Russian banks' connections with Trump Tower right. uh, during the campaign and also taking data from the White House itself. Okay, that's in the Durham report. This is, this is now uh, in the DOJ. There will be indictments. And the other person involved in that, a hoax uh, of Russian involvement with Trump, fabricating that evidence, is Jake Sullivan, our national security advisor in the United States, who was Hillary Clinton's uh, uh, top campaign aide at the time. He is part of that, that uh, effort to fabricate evidence. So he's calling for a war on Russia, screaming for a war on Russia over the last two weeks. And meanwhile, there's, a, there's a, uh, an investigation. He's been fingered for fabricating Russian evidence to blame on Trump mm. on behalf of Hillary Clinton. I mean, you can't make it up. The level of corruption here is off the charts. Totally. Uh, so let's move on then to NATO. And uh, as we reported on Wednesday, on Wednesday was the defense minister's meeting. Uh, NATO is committed to finding a political solution to the crisis, but will not compromise on its core principles, is what they were claiming. Uh, so here is the uh, wonderful Ben Wallace arriving. 
uh, in Brussels to the NATO headquarters uh, for that meeting. Um, and uh, so NATO's official position is that there's no sign of a Russian withdrawal. Uh, and uh, so there's still need to be quite hysterical about what's going on on the Ukrainian border. Um, so they were meeting. Uh, our military commanders will work on the details of what they're describing as, as a new uh, battle group for Ukraine. So here's uh, a better picture of uh, Ben, uh, masked up, as you can imagine. I guess it's because he's embarrassed to show his face. Uh, well, that's a nice shot. It's caught him breathing in, Mike, there. You can see he's taking a deep breath in. Very yes. So they're going to create a new battle group uh, just for Ukraine. Um, and, uh, and as a result, the UK is going to send personnel uh, and more equipment. Uh, and the, so the Royal Welsh Battle Group, uh, which includes armoured vehicles and personnel, will uh, leave Germany. Uh, and there, well, they're going to go to the Balkan states. Uh, yeah, to the Bal um, yes, uh, and uh, Apache helicopters will also be making their way to conduct exercises in Eastern Europe. Uh, four additional Typhoon jets have gone to Cyprus uh, and uh, are going to begin to patrol the skies uh, with NATO allies in Eastern Europe. HMS Trent is being handed over to this as well. Uh, HMS Diamond is preparing to set sail, I believe it when I see it. Uh, and uh, 350 Royal Marines of 45 Commando uh, have already arrived in Eastern Europe as well. So, so we're, we're building this new battle group because of the increased threat. And as we reported on Wednesday, I think it was, uh, Eastern European countries demanding uh, you know, permanent uh, US occupation on their land. Um, so Poland already has that. Romania wants it. Um, where does this end? Mm -hmm. I don't know, but it's it's not like it's going to make a dent uh, in the sort of you know geopol geopolitics of military politics of the region. I mean, it's it's more it's it's a symbolic statement, isn't but it? But it's more it's more mind messing with 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 domestic audiences, isn't it? It's about reporting. It's about headlines. It's about mm. making sure that the mainstream media has plenty of material to keep bombarding people with in order to justify whatever is coming. Yeah, and Apache helicopters made in America. You sure? Yeah, yeah, you don't make your own anymore. No, that's true. You used to make good helicopters. Not anymore, yes. but now let's come on to this. Uh, here's the Council on Geostrategy. Uh, we reported this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, speaking at the Lowy Institute today, this about two weeks ago, UK Foreign Secretary Liz Truss outlined the formation of new trilateral between UK, Poland, and Ukraine. What does this new group look like and what is its geostrategic purpose? We depict it here in this helpful geopolitical map. So here is the helpful geopolitical map. And today the UK government has announced this. So there's a joint statement by the Secretary of State for Foreign uh, Commonwealth and Development Affairs uh, of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Poland and the Minister for Foreign Affairs of Ukraine. So let's have a look at what they uh, have said here. Uh, we agree today to develop a trilateral memorandum of cooperation. This will demonstrate our commitment to further strengthening the strategic cooperation and engagement between our three nations in the highest priority issues in support of Ukraine. We will work together to advance our cooperation, which includes but not limited to coordinating support on the international Crimea platform, increasing our collaboration on cybersecurity, uh, energy security, and boosting strategic communications to counter disinformation. And I've highlighted the international. Crimea platform. Uh, here is the website of the International Crimea Platform. And this is all about uh, Patrick getting Crimea back from Russia. Uh, is that going to happen? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, how do they plan to get it back? Convince the people to have a referendum and join Ukraine again? 
I don't know. But one thing people aren't aware of, when, after the referendum in 2014, uh, when 95%, I guess, of Crimeans right. came out and said, we want to reunite, we want to reunite with Russia after being separated since 1954. So Putin didn't annex it. They reunited with Russia. Right. After the referendum, what did, they, what did the Ukrainian government do at the, at the behest of the U.S. and NATO member states? They dammed up the, the northern Crimean Canal to deprive fresh water of going into the Crimea. That happened, uh, I believe, in 20, yeah, late 2014 or 2015. So, I mean, that's just totally out of spite. That would be against international law. Uh, that would be a, you know, a war crime or, you know, so they, they've done that and it's it put a lot of strain uh, on agriculture uh, in Crimea. It's cut, it's cut down the, the, amount, of, the uh, amount of agrable land and many other things and created all sorts of problems. But the West says that's okay. That's okay because Putin annexed Crimea, according to the West. So therefore, we can shut off their fresh water. It's not a problem. Okay. Can you see the double standard? of our, uh, our international rules-based order is pretty, yes. pretty spectacular. Yeah, indeed. Okay, well, let's move on to uh, financial news then. And this is, uh, I believe, ABC News in Australia. Uh, Jeremy Grantham uh, says a super bubble crash may be underway. Here's why he's, where he's stashing his cash. We well, don't care where he's stashing his cash, but it's a super bubble uh, question. Now, this uh, article here, uh, Jeremy Grantham, of course, uh, founder and chief executive of GO, GMO. We'll show this in a second. It's a wealth management company, a fund. Uh, he's also a CBE and so on. Uh, so uh, this article here is sort of reinforcing something that he published about a year ago uh, on the GMO website uh, called, uh, the title was uh, Waiting for the Last Dance. But let's just have a look at what he was saying to ABC. Uh, that is the beginning of the burst when the specs, that's speculative stocks, that's stocks that people are speculating in most often, uh, that typically go up quite a lot more than the market, uh, go down as the market goes up. So what he's saying is that the, the particular stocks that speculators are interested in, those prices are tending to go down, even when the broader market is going up. Um, so he went on to say, so the S&P went up 25% last year, uh, and a lot of the most speculative stocks of 2020 were already going down. That is very rare. Uh, he said it happened in 1929. It happened in 1972 before the very big decline then. It happened in 2000 before the tech wipeout. Uh, at the end, the speculative stocks start to peel off. And even on the upside for the broader market, they start to go down. That started early last year, which is when he published that original article. The super duper specs, the worst of them all, started to decline, he says. And then one by one, they fell in and started to drop. And as we stand today, something like 40% of all the NASDAQ stocks are down over 50%, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and he said, I think this would be unlikely that the market would not come down by 50% from its peak, the broad market that is, and it would be unusual if the specs did not do worse than that. And so Patrick, if we're wondering why there seems to be such a, a move for destabilization and war at the moment, perhaps this gives us a clue. Mm. And what, what do you think the benefit would be in terms of what to, to cover up the market crash or to blame it on the war? There's a number of scapegoats you could there, use. There are, but of course, when you're mobilizing for war, there's all kinds of uh, emergency interventions you can make, which, which might hide uh, what's otherwise going on. But we also know that this type of, historically, this type of crash has been a trigger for, for war. Yeah, yeah, it has. Yeah, and, th and that's a, another distractive element as well. Yes. 
to keep people's eyes off the ball. And here's one of the things that is also causing a crash, the crash of the value of the, of the money in your pocket. We're yes. talking about inflation, which is a stealth tax. Uh, let's, let's be clear about that. So look at this, Washington Post. Oh my goodness, Mike, they're finally admitting. It took them a little while, but now it's sort of coming home. Immense fraud creates <laughs> immense task for Washington's. It tries to tighten scrutiny of the $6 trillion in emergency coronavirus spending. Fraud, identity theft continues to pile up, and the watchdogs are wondering uh, whether they will be able to recover all of the stolen cash, okay? $6 trillion. What were they thinking? What were they thinking when they decided to uh, open the magic money tree uh, for $6 trillion? Look at this. It's just an example. Stanford, Connecticut. 46-year-old resident, uh, $4 million in coronavirus aid towards the purchase of a Porsche and a Mercedes and a BMW. And again, here, Somerset, New Jersey, 51-year-old woman, alleged, uh, allegedly invented employees, inflated wages, fabricated entire tax filings to collect a million in loans. COVID-19, thank you very much, government. And here we go again. Whoops, St. Petersburg, Florida, federal judge. Sentenced to prison, 63-year-old man who obtained 800 grand on behalf of a business, wait for it, that doesn't exist. So, and on and on and on it goes. And there's hundreds, if not thousands, of these cases that they're adjudicating. These are the only, only the ones they've caught, right. okay, nationwide in the United States. This was a free-for-all, the likes of which no one has ever seen. And the majority of the theft and the graft was done probably by the major corporations, and they will never, ever, ever have to be accountable for that or ever get caught from that. They're on their yacht right now, and they are laughing down in Antigua. So the aid continues to be a ripe target for criminals nationwide, the full extent of which uh, is only beginning to come to light. No kidding. What did you think was going to happen? There's no question that the immense fraud that took place... Uh, yeah, keep talking. Yeah, there's no question... Uh, was, Back to the camera, please. There we go. There's no question that the immense fraud that took place uh, to, to crush the pandemic in 2020, I, I highlighted that, crushed the pandemic. They didn't crush the pandemic. None of these measures crushed anything. Okay. This, well, it crushed people's lives and livelihoods. It crushed, and it crushed the value of the U.S. dollar, particularly in small business uh, loans and unemployment uh, insurance. So look, this, and so here's, that's the issue that we're dealing with. Take the test and trace, UK, the big test and trace, NHS test and trace. How much did that cost? 30 billion. 30 billion. That's a good chunk of change for a country like the United Kingdom. Yes. Usually there's a lot of arguments when that sort of money is being uh, tabled for appropriation, right? I mean, that's a big deal. It's 30 billion. How many lives did the NHS test and trace system save? Uh, I would put a nice round number on that. Yeah, a nice round number. Zero. Yeah. Yes. Can they prove that even one life was saved by a 30 billion pound test and trace program? Can you prove scientifically that even one life was saved by that? And you, and you really threw 30 billion out the window for that? Well, we know that it was more than just a test and trace program. It was the uh, embryonic uh, digital ID mm. and digital personal tracking and human tracking and management uh, uh, app. That's what it was. But they sold it as test and trace, saved lives from COVID. Didn't do anything of the sort, okay? And I would challenge anybody to provide some proof, some scientifically verifiable 
proof, not an opinion by one of the public health mavens mm. or the people who designed it, no, or, or an NHS consultant, no. We want to see scientific proof. Show us a peer-reviewed study how many lives were actually saved by the 30 billion pound test and trace. Sorry to belabor that point, but I think it's kind of- No, it's an important point, absolutely. It's kind of important. And here's a really incredible story here. This is uh, Sandy Hook, the the shooting, uh, school shooting back in 2012, very controversial event, as well as the uh, people who commented on it many times afterwards. The families have announced $73 billion- Million. Or sorry, million, sorry, million. $73 $73 million settlement with Remington Arms in a landmark agreement. So this is a direct attack on the Second Amendment in the United States. Yeah. And uh, so Remington is a company that's actually going bankrupt. Uh, so apparently they're going to get the money not from the Remington, but from the four insurance companies. So they shouldn't have insured this company. And so they're attacking the insurance companies. And the first thing I noticed on this was this. Look at this, immediately a correction. a correction comes up. So about 12 hours later, this pops up on the article, Mike. It says a previous version of this article incorrectly stated that Remington accepted liability in a settlement with the Sandy Hook families. A court filing noting the settlement does not mention any liability. The article has been corrected to reflect the change after it went viral and went out into everybody's brains over the first 12 hours. Mm. How many times have we seen that before? So no, they didn't admit liability here. So I I don't even know if they're gonna get any money at all. Remington's bankrupt. Do insurance companies like to pay out money generally? Uh, Not really, no. (laughs) They have lots of lawyers to make sure that they don't have to. But anyway, the courts have ruled that they got someone's gotta pay these families because of marketing. It's how they marketed the guns. Mm. They said that they marketed them to make them look too uh, masculine or to excite young men. And uh, so that's the Bushmaster AR-15 gun, the notorious AR-15, mm. uh, which isn't really an automatic weapon, it's, it's a rifle, um, but they're saying as how it's marketed. That's the basis of the judgment, okay? So it's marketing. And so they got to see the discovery uh, from the case and they'll, so they're gonna now comb through the activists, the anti-gun activists are gonna comb through all of the business practices of, and marketing decisions and notes and everything corresponds regarding how they market their products. So this is a slippery slope. You, you could say, oh, I'm against guns. I think that's okay. Uh, what else is dangerous out in the world uh, that maybe people market to make it look more sexy, like cars, mm. for instance? How many people caught speeding in cars? Uh, is it toxic masculinity in the marketing that's uh, responsible for that? Well, according to these, these judges, yes. Uh, so we need to litigate, okay? Very dangerous, very dangerous indeed. So, Okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on to this then. And uh, uh, Alex uh, Berenson here uh, in Unreported Truths. Uh, data about the vaccines is disappearing. What's he talking about? Well, it's an announcement from the Scottish government that uh, really we want to drop, or they want to drop, any uh, data involving a comparison between vaccinated people and unvaccinated people with respect to COVID-19. So uh, Alex uh, Berenson here saying, whoops, I mean, Scotland was one of the most transparent. Uh, The country said mRNA shots work so well that the raw data showing how well they work will no longer be released uh, because they work so well. And I think that's a a fair point. So let's have a look at the Glasgow Times article here. COVID data will not be published over concerns 
it's misrepresented by anti-vaxxers. And what they're saying is that Public Health Scotland will stop publishing data on COVID deaths and hospitalizations by vaccination status. Uh, as they say, over concerns is misrepresented by anti-vax campaigners. The public health watchdog announced the change in policy in its most recent COVID, COVID uh, statistical report, saying the frequency and content of the data would be reviewed. Instead, officials will focus on publishing more robust and complex uh, vaccine effectiveness data. Uh, PHS uh, officials said significant concerns about the data being misused deliberately by anti-vaccination campaigners was behind the move. The facts being used deliberately, right? Yes, yes, the facts being used. It's because it's the wrong kind of facts. They need the right kind of facts. So they're going to make the, what did they say here? They're going to make uh, uh, more robust and complex vaccine effectiveness data available. So it's going to be much more complex, it's going to be much harder for anybody to make an analysis of it. Obfuscation. Obfuscation. Yeah, 100%. so we'll cover it up, we'll obfuscate it in order to protect the public from those anti-vaxxers because we don't want to let those guys get a hold of the facts. Very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Uh, now let's move on to this one. And uh, this is entitled uh, Vaccine-Induced HIV Susceptibility? Question mark. So it is a question that's being asked. Um, and uh, what's it talking about? Well, first of all, uh, this article saying that early research demonstrated that there were significant problems with the adenoviral vectors uh, in early HIV vaccination trials. Uh, chief amongst them was an increase of susceptibility to HIV infection. Uh, the initial research using adenoviral 5 vector, AD5, in a novel HIV vaccine in the STEP study, and that was in 2008, raised alarms as the intervention arm and it had a significant increase in HIV infection compared to controls. So the people with the vaccine, inverted commas, uh, apparently tested positive for HIV much more uh, often than people that were on the control group. Uh, as adenoviral vector COVID-19 vaccines were being trialed with the AD5 and other adenoviral vectors, researchers expressed their concerns, and they quote a paper there that you can see on screen. And the quote says, we're writing to express concern about the use of a recombinant adenovirus type 5 vector in COVID-19 phase 1 vaccine study and subsequent uh, adjuvanced trials. Uh, over a decade ago, we completed the STEP and, uh, and FAMBIL phase 2b studies uh, that evaluated an AD5 vector HIV-1 vaccine administered in three uh, immunizations for efficacy against HIV-1 acquisition. Both international studies found an increased risk of HIV-1 acquisition amongst vaccinated men. Uh, and they go on to say in this report here, unfortunately, we uh, see often in vaccine research, common sense does not prevail. They decided to just try another adenoviral vector, uh, which now brings us to 2022 and a significant chunk of the world's population having been vaccinated with adenoviral vector vaccines, including AstraZeneca's and Johnson & Johnson's iterations. Of course, claims will be made that they are safe and effective, but call me cautious, when I don't just believe the first thing I'm told by drug companies, can we just assume that there won't be any uh, cross-reactivity with adenoviral vectors resulting in the same problem found with AD5 down the line? And uh, I don't know what you make of that, Patrick, but uh, it seems like a reasonable question to ask at the very least. Sure, we have to ask these questions, but more than likely, uh, uh, this, this, this development of this is going to get kind of rushed through. The new precedent is to fast-track vaccines. Right. Uh, because we can't wait, we can't wait. We gotta save life. If it saves just one life, I'm waiting for that one. If it saves just one life, it's all worth it to, to forget about what the collateral damage is. No, but the point is, what are they? What are they asking there? Is there an immune challenge as a result of right. the vaccine? Is isn't that really 
what they're talking about. And, and they also don't distinguish between HIV and AIDS. And I see a lot of journalists doing that. They do that with COVID-19 and coronavirus yes. as well. Yes. One is a disease, COVID-19. Coronavirus is the uh, pathogen, supposedly. Okay, so, but they interchange these constantly. And that's, that's wrong. And that means you can't have an actual rational and logical critical debate on this. The same with HIV and AIDS. AIDS is the disease, i.e. COVID-19, and HIV is the uh, pathogen that allegedly causes HIV, right. according to many experts now as well. So, but uh, you can't conflate the two. And when you do, uh, then the, the, the conversation almost becomes completely meaningless, uh, at, least, at least confusing. Mm. So that's one of the also problems, the frames of reference on this. But no one will dare say on any of these journals is that, <laughs> that the, the vaccine could cause an autoimmune reaction. Mm -hmm. They'll even scapegoat HIV if they have to, just to keep it away from the, sort of the generic statement of a vaccine might cause an autoimmune reaction or can cause an autoimmune reaction, because then that just opens up Pandora's box uh, for the pharmaceutical companies. Yes. But uh, just quickly, uh, the, the HIV vaccine is just being talked about by everybody right now. We'll bring this up on screen. So this is what they're pushing now. And it's going to be an mRNA vaccine, Mike. It's going to be a gene therapy vaccine. So we need to save the world from AIDS. In fact, you'll, everyone should get one of these, right? I mean, if Moderna has their way, everyone should have one just in case. Well, we've got new, new variants of HIV doing the rounds. It's extremely dangerous, extremely contagious. We need to get tested. Mass testing is what Prince Harry's pr uh, pushing for, as we reported the other day. Uh, and therefore, once we get the mass testing, uh, done, then we'll get many more cases, and then we can get the vaccine rolled out. This is a familiar system, isn't it? It reminds me. It reminds me of another system, the kind of the computer virus update system. Let's put that news article back on screen, Mike. So, 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 who do you think is behind this one? Who's bankrolling this this job here? Um, you know, this system, this computer virus system. Who could it be? Let's take a look. Uh, at the moment, the first potential step forward, Moderna and the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative, funded by, guess who? Billy Goats. That's right, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, a.k.a. Billy Goats and his ex-wife, have joined forces to begin a landmark trial for an HIV mRNA gene jab by Moderna. I mean, these guys just haven't had enough yet, have they? No, no, they want much more. They want more, they want much yeah. more. So yes. just so people are aware, we got a video to show you. This was Project Veritas. This is one of the most powerful, and they've done some amazing work, okay? James O'Keefe, Project Veritas. They managed to uh, get an FDA commissioner, executive level, on camera, boasting to some probably very attractive girl uh, in a bar in New York or Washington, D.C. I can't know where this was filmed. But he basically spills the beans on the regulatory process, completely corrupt, bought and paid for by the pharmaceutical companies, says the U.S. regulator. Watch this. I didn't want to inoculate as many people as possible. So you have to get an annual shot. I mean, it hasn't been formally announced yet. They don't want to, like, uh, rile everyone up. The drug companies, the food companies, the vaccine companies, so they pay us hundreds of millions of dollars a year to hire and keep the reviewers to approve their products. If they can get every person required at an annual vaccine, that is a recurring return of um, 
uh, money going into their, their company. So how do you know it's already getting approved? Well, they're not going to, um, I mean, just from everything I've heard, they're not going to not approve this. Meet Christopher Cole, an executive officer at the FDA with over 20 years experience who claims to be directly involved in the approval process of the various COVID vaccines. I think um, what's going to happen is um, it's going to be a gradual thing. School's going to mandate it. Why do they need the third one? Well, the same reason um, that you or I would need the third one. So the three will bolster your, your system. And then there will be an annual, um, eventually an annual, just like the flu shot. For the toddlers? Well, for everyone. Okay, so the toddlers too then. We'll have to get it. Probably. Okay. I don't completely agree with their, the process. What do you mean you don't agree with the process? Well, I mean, they, um, they don't have all the, all the tests aren't there. So I agree with the thing that it is important to inoculate them. Um, but you can't provide the, um, the parent as much um, assurity as you normally want to. It's an EUA for all, all, um, all age groups, all designations, and then you have to get approved by specific age groups based on the study. Do you think it's really an emergency for the toddlers? Well, they're all uh, improved under an emergency. The efficacy data doesn't have to be as high. Mm. The standard is on emergency use authorizations is that it does more benefit than harm. I thought their cases weren't that high for six what? months to four year olds. They're not, but it, because it's um, related to COVID, it's under that approval process. It, it is quite incredible. Um, yeah. I mean, well, how can they walk back from that? Isn't that everything that we have said yeah. over the last year or so that was just confirmed by an FDA executive So officer. has the FDA made any statement on it? They have. They've said that he misspoke. That uh, disregard all of what you've just heard, uh, according to the FDA, he, he misspoke. Uh, so, and apparently he was panicking when James O'Keefe did a follow-up call asking for comment. Uh, and just by coincidence, of course, the UK has just uh, approved uh, use of vaccination for five to eleven-year-olds. So, you there know, you it's it's pretty clear. Well, look, we're just going to we're massively out of time here. We're just going to finish off with uh, a couple of bits of news on the COVID pass as well. You were asking, are we walking back from that? Well, uh, Wales is finally uh, looks like it's dropping the COVID pass uh, requirement as of today. Uh, and even according to RT Patrick in Israel, they're scrapping the uh, the green pass at least for now. Uh, so the question is, what's the next step? Mm -hmm. Well, I Israel was really running point, weren't they? Leading the agenda from the beginning. So that was really kind of, to me, the beta, one of the main beta testing grounds uh, for, for this particular initiative. So their infrastructure's in place. This is the issue. Yes. The system's been put in place. They might roll back policies or restrictions now, but the system is in place. All they have to do is flick a switch. Everybody's trained like house pets now, uh, all the uh, hospitality venues, security, transport, everybody knows how to play the game, put the mask on, show the QR code, get the pass, do the whole spiel, okay? So it's not, it's the, we're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. No, this is effectively a beta test and uh, we'll see what happens uh, to bring it back, but I'm pretty sure they're not gonna spend uh, the amount of money they've spent uh, and just let it go. This is not a policy they want to drop. 
what the, what they're saying in uh, in in other countries I've I've noticed and especially in Italy and saying now is the time to, to push back against the government that the uh, the, mm. the freedom activists are saying because this is this is the time to push back right and, and a lot of people probably agree with them on that as well. Yes. Okay. Well, look, we've got to leave it there. Hopefully, we'll see you all at six o'clock for the Doctors for COVID Ethics Symposium. Uh, and thanks for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and uh, we'll be back Monday, 1 p.m. as usual for the news. Uh, and hope you have a great weekend. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.